All right, what we are about to do is only possible with God's help. So let's go and pray and ask for his help now before we start. Our Heavenly Father, the fount of all blessings, the creator of all things. God, we come to your word this evening as beggars. Beggars who long to see you, to experience communion with you. But we recognize that apart from your help, apart from the Holy Spirit that you have sent to give us understanding, we will fall short. So God, we ask for your help. We ask that you would help us to comprehend the glory of your son, Jesus Christ, taking on flesh in order that we might receive grace upon grace. It is in the name of that very Jesus that we pray. Amen. If you're just joining us, this is our second week together in midweek. We're starting in the Gospel of John. So last week, we did an overview of the Gospel of John. What was John's purpose in writing? We just kind of tried to familiarize ourselves with this wonderful gospel. And then tonight, we have the wonderful privilege of looking in the actual words of John chapter 1. We get to read the very words that God himself, through his Holy Spirit, inspired. We get to encounter God through his word this evening. So these 18 verses, we're about to see and to hear God himself speak to us through his word. And as we talked about last week, if you haven't gotten a wristband yet, there should be more on your way out. Feel free to grab another one for a friend or if you just want a second one. What we'll also see in this text is Jesus, the one through whom we get to know God the Father. So we'll see that at the end of our text. But this text here, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, is a bear. It is one of the most glorious introductions to any book of the Bible. It's like the opening score of a symphonic masterpiece. It's like the narration of Neil Armstrong taking his first steps on the moon. It's like the opening monologue of the ESPN 30 for 30, which will undoubtedly be written about the must bus. Or, given that I'm a Baylor grad, the ESPN 30 for 30 about Scott Drew taking the Baylor Bears from the death penalty to the 2021 national champions. Sick of Bears. But it's actually more than all of these things. This opening monologue, this epilogue, or this, this prologue to the Gospel of John is so much more than we can even comprehend. It's glorious, it's sweeping, it's a downright beautiful introduction to the eternal, incarnate Word of God who is sent into the world so that those walking in darkness might experience the light. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to read through this text, this glorious text, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. And then again, we're going to pray and plead that the Lord will help us to comprehend it so that we can know him. So pick up in verse 1 with me. This is going to be one of the most important things we do this evening, these 18 verses. Read along with me, John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. 
The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God, that is Jesus Christ, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Here's what I want us to see from these first 18 verses in the Gospel of John. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, came into this world so that we might see and know God. You see it there in verse 18. No one has ever seen God. We'll explain what that means more in just a minute, but he's saying the only God, that's referencing Jesus, the one who is at the Father's side, Jesus has made him known. So Jesus coming as this incarnate word makes God known to us, that we can enter into relationship with him. So Jesus, the eternal son of God, has come into this world so that we might see God and that we might know him. I hope that you have a, a handout with you. It's going to be helpful in guiding you through our time together. You'll see on your handout that we have three ways that we're going to kind of break this text down for us, just so we can see the various aspects of what John, I think, is seeking to highlight, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. If you noticed as we read the text, there are three kind of themes that continue to pop up in this gospel here in these 18 verses. In verses 1 to 3, we see that Jesus is referred to as the divine word. He is this word that was in the beginning with God and was God. In verses 4 to 13, we see Jesus referenced as the true light that shines in the darkness. And then in verses 14 through 18, we see this word grace pop onto the scene and be repeated multiple times by John. So we see that Jesus is this divine word. He's the true light, and he is the giver of grace. Now, given that John has written this gospel with the express purpose, y'all remember the purpose? That those who see Jesus in his gospel will come to believe in him and that by believing they may have life in his name. This prologue in verses 1 to 18 about the divine son of God made flesh is really a culmination of the whole story of the Bible. Remember, John said in John 20 that I have written these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ and that by believing in Jesus, you may have life in his name. And so Jesus, the one through whom we have life, 
really is the culmination of all that the Bible has been working toward in the Old Testament. Now, I want to spend the rest of our time together convincing you from this text that because Jesus is the divine word, he alone is the means by which we can be transferred from darkness to light. He alone is the one through whom we are able to receive grace. John wants us to behold Jesus in all his glory, but he also wants us to see that Jesus is the one and the only way that he has provided for salvation. All of the Old Testament longings, Jesus is the one that we must look to. Let's think first about that divine word. You know, the description of Jesus as the word can feel a bit obscure at first. I think particularly if you're not familiar with the Bible, you come to the gospel of John and you're like, wait a minute, I thought this was a gospel, which is good news about Jesus. I hear Christians talk about Jesus, but what is this word? Is this a Greek philosophy textbook? I mean, what are we doing here? Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, or Matthew, Mark, and Luke were very clear in their openings about who this book is about. So why does John start here with the word? Well, if you notice even there in verse 1, this opening phrase from the gospel, in the beginning, what does that remind you of? Genesis, yeah. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's clear that John is echoing the language of Genesis 1-1 to link the creation of all things at the beginning of time with the introduction of the word into time, space, and history. And in this same section of scripture from Genesis 1, the Bible records in Genesis 1-3 that God speaks... And what happens? Things come into existence. God's word, his spoken word is what creates. He speaks in light forms like that. He speaks and the earth is formed. He speaks and the darkness is divided from the light. Here we learn that God's word, his spoken word, is his instrument of choice to accomplish his purposes. God is the, God's word is the agent of creation, the means by which all things come into being. But again, this isn't the only place where we see God's word in action in the Old Testament. If you jump ahead to Genesis chapter 12, there's a man by the name of Abram who later becomes Abraham. And you may remember that he is sojourning off in a foreign land. All of a sudden, this voice from the heavens speaks, God's word speaks out to Abram and tells him, hey, I know that this is a familiar land, but I want you to leave here, and I want you to go to this land that I'm going to show you. And I promise that as you do, I will make a great nation of you. Your descendants will be as many as the sand on the seashore, as many as the stars in the skies above, and I will give you a land. So you're going to inhabit a place, and you're going to multiply as a nation of people. So here, God is speaking a promise to Abram, and then Genesis 15 and 17, recall Abram's response. Abram responds by faith, not acting with what he can see because it's just God's spoken word that he has to trust. There's nothing physical that he ought to trust in. His whole family, everything that he's ever done is established here. God speaks to him and he has to decide, is this person's word trustworthy? If you know the story, Abram, who again becomes Abraham, 
trusts the word of the Lord, and it says that it was credited to him as righteousness. So that is by placing his faith in God, these promises now that God has given him to give him a nation and to give him land are going to come to pass. So here at the beginning of the book of Genesis, the beginning of the whole Bible, we see that God's word has spoken a promise that despite the sinfulness of man that happened in Genesis 3, that separated God from man, there is now a little bit of a hope of promise that there's someone through whom God still intends to carry out relationship with. Then if we jump ahead to 2 Samuel 7, there's a lot that happens in between this time, but we see that Abraham does in fact become a mighty nation, the nation of Israel that we know. These people continue to expand and grow and multiply. All of a sudden, they end up in slavery in Egypt under Pharaoh's oppressive rule. But then what happens? God raises up Moses, and Moses frees these people. He leads them out of slavery into this exodus. And then what happens in Exodus 20? God again speaks because he doesn't leave, him, he doesn't leave his people without his word. He speaks and gives them his law so that they may know him, so that they may know his character, so that they may follow him. These people continue wandering, and they keep on wondering, how are we going to continue to be a mighty nation if we don't have a king? All of a sudden, we see that Saul comes along and Saul falls, but then we land with King David, someone who actually seems to be a pretty a pretty uh, good chance at being a king who's going to help Israel turn into this nation and fulfill the promises that God made to Abraham. We see this crazy story of David just as a boy slaying a literal giant because of his faith in God. And in 2 Samuel 7, God again speaks to David and he says, to your offspring, I will give a kingdom, a kingdom that shall not be moved. And so here, God's word of grace that he's spoken to Abraham continues to expand and continues to be clarified. We recognize that God, through his word, has not only created everything in existence, but God, through his word, intends to establish a kingdom of people for himself. But we don't know exactly who is going to rule this kingdom. Throughout Israel's history, we're left to wonder that, and God sends many different prophets to, again, continue to speak his word so that we can continue to know him. When we land in Jeremiah 31, we see that God again speaks his word to the nation of Israel through the prophet of of Jeremiah and says, these hearts that you have, these hearts that are stubborn and rebellious and sinful, I'm going to write my law. I'm literally going to write my very words upon your heart sovereignly. I'm going to be the one who does it because you're not going to do it of your own accord so that you can know me, so that you can follow me, so that you can have relationship with me. There's so many instances. You think of Ezekiel 36 where God tells Ezekiel to cry out, to speak out to these bones, the very words of God speak out to these dead, dry bones, and they come to life. Again, all of these things are helping to demonstrate to us that God's word continues to bring life. God's word continues to bring promise. So when we land here in John chapter 1, verse 1, and the very first words we hear are about the word, we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised that the grand story that all of the Old Testament has been working toward 
is now finding its culmination in the Word made flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ. It makes perfect sense that the promised Messiah, the fulfillment of all God's promises, the one made flesh for our salvation, would here be identified as the Word of God. I hope we feel the the significance and the weight and the, the beauty of what's happening here as we get to encounter this text. John, in just one verse, in the beginning was the Word, is helping us to see our God's kindness despite our sin and not leaving us on our own, but continually coming back to us with his word that we may know him. Y'all remember those creepy jack-in-the-box toys? Oh, man, I hated those things. I hope that they don't make them anymore. You wind them out. You don't know when it's going to come, but you can hear the music, and it gets louder, and it gets louder, and then, bam, this freaky-looking clown pops out, right? In many ways, though all illustrations fall short, we see this Old Testament building, 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 and then, bam, John hits us with the primary subject that we're supposed to see, which is Jesus. Look down again at verse 1. It says that this word was with God and was God. And quickly, if we Again, can't yet make the jump. If you look at verse 14, we see that this word becoming flesh kind of starts to clue us into the fact that Jesus, that the word that he's speaking of is Jesus. And then in verse 17, he makes it explicit that he's talking about Jesus Christ. So here we're seeing verse 1, in the beginning was the word that is Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. Jesus is God. Here in verse 1, we are given the privilege of glimpsing into the eternal relationship between the Father and the Son in the triune Godhead. I think I mentioned last week that as we continue to journey throughout the Gospel of John, we're going to learn more and more and more about this wonderful doctrine of God as the one God existing in three persons through the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, I think in many Christian circles that we don't talk about the Trinity because it's complicated, it's complex, it's a little bit hard to get our hands around. But that's the last thing I want to do because God, again, in his wisdom and in his kindness has inspired this word for us to know it and that as we know it, we get to behold more of his character. And so my suggestion, my exhortation to you is that when you feel it and you're like, man, this is a little bit hard to get my hands around, either tonight or in weeks in the future when we start to talk about the nature of this relationship, to dig in, to press in. Because again, in seeing the beauty of God in all his fullness, his triune fullness, we will come to experience more of his glory. Now, I put on your handout um, a a description here, okay? So I want want you to look at that later. We're going to walk through every part of that, but I want you to, to look at that later. Right now, I just want you to listen. I want you to listen as we kind of talk through this basic confession. Now, the reason that I, again, I think this is important is we're going to work through this text, but here we're starting to see these two persons. We haven't yet gotten to the Holy Spirit, but we're seeing reference to Jesus and we're seeing reference to Jesus being with God. And so I just want to establish just basically this doctrine here. Now, the Bible consistently affirms three things about the Trinity, okay? There is one God, 
What do we think? We have any issues so far? There is one God. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. So if anybody ever tells you, oh yeah, Christians worship three gods. There's the Father, there's the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Say, no, the Bible actually teaches that there is one God. All right, say it with me. There is one God. One God. All right. We're one-third of the way there. You got this. Y'all are about to be Trinitarian theologians. Let's go. Second part. Here we go. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are consistently identified with the one God. Okay? So there is one God in each of the persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in the Bible are always identified with this one God. Such that you can't say that Jesus is not God. You can't say that the Holy Spirit is just this mystical ghost that kind of operates from God but isn't God. No, the Holy Spirit is God. And we see clearly in Scripture that the Father is God. So there is one God. The Father is God. The Son is God. And the Holy Spirit is God. We see this in passages like 1 Corinthians 8, 6. In Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. Again, those are printed on your handout. Now, third and finally. Though the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are identical with the one God, the Bible distinguishes the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit by their relations to one another. So again, we'll see all throughout the Gospel of John, and this is why I want to establish this here. We'll see all throughout the Gospel of John that the Father sends the Son. There seems to be this divine mission by which the Father and the Son from eternity past have agreed on this plan of salvation that the Father is going to send the Son to take on flesh so that he can be the ransom for our sins as he dies upon a cross. And then we see that even later on in the Gospel of John that Jesus himself says that I am going to send to you a helper, the Holy Spirit, who will help you to discern the teachings of his word. So again, all of these things are going to help us as we continue on. So there is one God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are identified with the one God. So there are not three gods in the Trinity, but one God. And yet the Bible distinguishes the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit by how they relate to one another. If you want a basic kind of introduction here, the Father is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, as we see in Ephesians 1.3. The Son is the Father's beloved Son, as we see in Matthew 3.17. And the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God, as we see in Matthew 3.16. Now again, we can admit that this is a bit of a mysterious doctrine. It's one that can be difficult to understand. Getting your hands around the doctrine of the Trinity is kind of like a child trying to palm a basketball. It's just, it, it feels impossible at times. But God doesn't exist in this complex relationship to confuse us. God has not revealed himself in this way for the purpose of confusing us. God exists in this way as one God in three persons in order that we might praise him and in order that we might cherish him. Think about it this way. The very word of God, which was with God in the beginning and is God himself, has appeared in human flesh in order that through his death in our place for our sins, we might have a way back into this eternal relations of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is where 
the doctrine of the Trinity becomes a doctrine for meditation, a doctrine that gives us assurance and comfort and hope and helps us to grasp an even greater depth of God's love for us. God made flesh in Jesus Christ invites you to share this intimate, eternal, and perfect love with him. If the Father, as we read here, has existed with the Son from eternity past with the Spirit, then we recognize that this relationship of love between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is an eternal love. And then if what John writes is true in John 20, that these things are written so that we may believe, and that by believing we may have life in Jesus' name, then that means that same love that extends from eternity past to eternity future between the Godhead is the same love that we get to experience in Christ. Behold the love of God demonstrated for you. We will spend our whole lives seeking to understand this glorious doctrine, and though we will never reach the bottom of its depths, the surface that we scratch will provide for us a glimpse into the very heart of the eternal God. God, through the person of Jesus Christ, taking on flesh, is saying to us, here is the heart of God. You can see it. And by faith, you can participate in it. You can receive it. Think about the person that you love the most. The person that loves you the most. When they look deep into your eyes and they tell you, I love you. That pales in comparison to the type of love that God's word talks about when we experience the love of God in Christ. There are no earthly illustrations to do this relationship justice. But John chapter 1, these first three verses give us a glimpse into the most glorious invitation you will ever receive, an invitation to experience this eternal love. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, came into the world so that we might see and know God and experience his love. Again, there's so much more that we could talk about related to the Trinity or even related to these first three verses. But in addition to Jesus' eternality, that is his uh, existence uh, from eternity past, we also see his divinity, that the word was God. There's no doubting that Jesus is God, that he is in the beginning with God. But then in verse 3, if you look down at your text, you see that all things were made through him. There are over 100 billion stars in our galaxy, just our galaxy. And that's amidst at least 100 million galaxies in known space, just what we're able to know, which means that there are some 10 octillion stars in space that we know of. That is a 10 with 27 zeros behind it. And John 1.3 is telling us that Jesus is the one through whom all of these things were made. And that that same Jesus has taken on petty flesh like us. This Jesus invites you to entrust your life and your cares to him. Now, not only is Jesus the divine word, we see starting in verse 4 that Jesus is the true light which takes us to that second heading there on the next page of your handout. 
Jesus is the true light. Look down with me at verse 4. It says, in him, that is in Jesus, was life. And this life was the light of men. That motif from Genesis, from in the beginning that we saw in Genesis 1-1, and then John 1-1 as well, continues in this passage of John's gospel as Jesus is presented as the light that cuts through the darkness of this sin-infested world. If you glance back down, you'll notice that John runs, again, with this explanation of the light from verse 4 all the way down through verse 13. Even that seemingly kind of odd interjection of information about John the Baptist in verses 6 through 8 is actually just part of John's purpose in teaching us about the light. But if you look back at verse 4, where do we see that this light in life is found? Feel free to shout it out. It's right there in the text. Where is this light in life found? Yeah, in him. That is, in Jesus. This is where this light in life is found. So we quickly learn that the light that overcomes the darkness and gives light can only be found in one place, and that is in Jesus Christ. Another theme that's going to continue throughout the Gospel of John is the exclusivity of Jesus as the only way to salvation. There are not multiple ways to God. We're laying down from the outset that only in Jesus is light and life. There's nothing outside these walls, outside of Jesus himself, that can give you salvation. And even John recognizes this truth in verses 6 to 8 as he says, I am just here to bear witness about the light. He himself is not the light, even though he preaches the good news of the light. He says, I am just a witness. It would be just as silly to worship the moon as a source of light, knowing that this moon is just a reflection of the sun. So too, Jesus himself is the only true light. He is the only one that we ought to worship. We learn further in verses 9 to 13 that this true light is the source of salvation. But here again, John introduces us to another major theme that's going to continue throughout this gospel. This major theme is that you are either born of God and you experience the light, that is, you walk in the light, or you're not born of God and you are living in darkness. John, all over his gospel, is going to make it clear there is no in-between. You are either born of God and walking in the light, or you are not of God, and you're still walking in darkness, and you do not share fellowship with God. We see that one group of people, verse 11, referencing the Jews, Jesus' own people, despite receiving God's grace in the Old Testament law, did not receive him. Despite experiencing God himself in the flesh, tabernacled among him, they were hardened due to their sin and rejected God. This is why verses 12 and 13 are so important. John helps us to see that those who do receive God, those who do receive Jesus and who believe in his name, who become children of God, are those who are born not by their own will, not by their own merit, but by God's gracious work in changing their lives. It says to all who did receive, to all who believed, to all who became children of God, they were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God alone. So it is God himself who's going to have to grant us this knowledge. 
the Bible clearly teaches that all of us are in darkness apart from God. Why would John have written this gospel? Why would the Holy Spirit have inspired these words about the word coming to us to bring light into the darkness unless darkness, sin, death existed? We all sin and we all walk in our foolish ways. Even those of us who give to charities or kiss babies or help old ladies across the street, all of us are still in sin apart from Christ. We still live under condemnation because sin is like blood or oil or wine that you get on a white t-shirt. No matter how hard you scrub, you're not going to be able to work it out on your own effort. Someone is going to have to come and to take that shirt off of you and to place upon you a clean, pure shirt. And that's what God does for us in Jesus Christ. I know that there are many of you in here who have been born again. But I imagine there might be some in this room who have not been born again. Those who are seeking to scrub the stains of sin off of themselves by their own effort. If that's you, here's what you need to know. You will stand before God in judgment at your death. And he will either receive you as his child or he will cast you back out into the darkness as just punishment for your sin. That's a truth we have to reckon with. And John's gospel here tells us that if you don't believe that, it's because your heart is hardened. But the beauty of the gospel is that your heart doesn't have to remain hardened. If you look to this Jesus and say, man, yeah, I feel that sin. I recognize it keeps me from God. And I know that God is the only one that can save me through his son. Help me look to him. How can you be confident that you have been given the right to become a children of God? Have the marks which accompany new birth in Christ shown themselves in your life? Are you aware of your own sin? Are you aware of the faith in Jesus alone to save you? Do you truly believe that it is only Jesus that can save you? Do you love others? Are you living righteously? Are you separated from the world or do you still love the things of the world? In verses 14 to 18, we're going to continue to see how we can experience this grace that comes in Jesus alone. Remember our main idea. Jesus, the eternal son of God, came into this world so that we might see and know God. But again, here's the reality. If we're walking in darkness, and this text identifies that God himself is light, then we're not going to see it. Which is why God, again, in his kindness, has given us the way by which we might receive this light. Verse 14 shows us how Jesus will do this. By taking on flesh as a human. God became man in the person of Jesus Christ. And not only does he become man, but he dwells among us. The Son of God from eternity past has now become 
God the Son incarnate, the one who has taken on flesh to be with us. Jesus does not set aside his deity or his divinity. That is, he doesn't set aside his godhood in order to become man. Instead, he adds to himself flesh. You can think of this as addition, not subtraction. He's not setting anything aside. He is fully God, but in an act of love and kindness and humility, he leaves the throne of heaven. He leaves the communion with the Father to take on flesh to be with us. That's what's happening here in John 1, 14. And this term, dwelt among us, harkens back to God making his dwelling among the Israelites in the Ark of the Covenant in the Tent of Meaning. Jesus coming to this earth has literally pitched his tent among us where men and women can openly see his glory. He says, I'm here in the flesh where you can see and experience my glory face to face. They are able to witness the glory, grace, and truth of God that Moses only glimpsed. They are able to receive, as we see verse 16, grace upon Grace, maybe you see there in your footnote, grace in place of grace. In other words, God had graciously revealed himself in the Old Testament by means of pictures and words and objects and the law, but now he has revealed himself through the person of his very own son, Jesus, who now dwells among them. In the law, God graciously reveals his character and righteous requirements to the nation of Israel, but Jesus, the one superior to Abraham, to Jacob, to Moses, marks the final, the definitive revelation of God to his people. It is the definitive revelation of God's grace in truth. And this grace that we see here that is made manifest among us is simply put, the gift of God which grants men and women the right to eternal life as they see their sin before God and look to Jesus alone to save them. Jesus, again, he gives us this grace in order that we might see and know God. But notice, if you look down at verse 18, there's a negative here. He says, no one has ever seen God. All of a sudden, we feel like this good news of grace and truth in Jesus Christ is not for us. But just as quickly as he says that, he reassures us at the end of verse 18 that Jesus makes God known. Another way to read verse 18 as the Christian Standard Bible renders it, it says, no one has ever seen God, the one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side. He, that is Jesus, has revealed him. Jesus has come to reveal God the Father to us that we may see him, that we may know him, and that through belief in the Son, we can receive the eternal life and the perfect communion with him that he offers. Whatever mental pictures of Jesus that you carry with you, the blonde-haired, blue-eyed picture of Jesus that you see in old Baptist churches, the olive-skinned social activist who is on a mission to get people to love their neighbors, or the pocket-sized domesticated Jesus that we treat like our buddy, I think John is showing us a different picture of Jesus. John is forcing us to think differently. He forces us in this text to behold the glorious eternal son who has come to reveal the father so that we might believe in him. And that by believing in him, 
we may have life in his name. Again, this is thousands of years of promise waiting to be fulfilled. And then just like that, as Jesus takes on flesh, God's promises will come to pass. Because Jesus has not only taken on flesh as a human, but he lived a perfect life as a human. Something that none of us, I know no one in this room has ever done. He lived completely without sin. We see that Jesus, throughout the Gospels, experiences all of the temptations that we experience. In fact, we even see that he's tempted in the wilderness with Satan. Just like Israel was tempted in the wilderness and fell time and time and time again, Jesus, tempted by Satan in the wilderness, passed the test. He is the only one who has ever perfectly pleased God. He is the only one with whom God has said, I am well pleased with this person because he's lived righteously. And so he's actually the only one to ever live on this earth who didn't deserve death because he actually did what God required. Because God is holy and because Jesus himself was righteous and sinless, he could dwell with God. And yet, as we'll see unfold in the Gospel of John, the beauty of the fact that Jesus took on this flesh, Jesus lived this righteous life so that he could bring grace to us. So that as he died on that cross in our place to bear the penalty that our sins deserved, that death that we ought to have died on the cross, that if we look to him on that cross and say, oh, yeah, that's the only sufficient way to pay for my sins. And then we see him in his resurrected state after he died, buried, and was raised three days later. And we say, yeah, that's the glorified and risen Christ, the one who has conquered sin and death for good. The one that I know that when I die, because I've placed my faith in him, I too will rise. I too, because of my faith in Jesus, will be resurrected and get to be with God in heaven, just as Jesus is when he ascended to the Father. But again, this, this offer, it's only available to those who place their faith and trust in Christ alone to save them. You can't look to your own. So to any who feel conviction of their sin or who maybe aren't convinced of their need for God, I beg you, look to Jesus, the one whose grace is sufficient to save you and to cause you to respond in repentance and faith. And to my brothers and sisters in the room, those whose names do belong in the book of life, because of the faith that you've placed in Jesus, again, turn your eyes upon him. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of past will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Friends, as we turn our eyes, brothers and sisters, as we turn our eyes upon Jesus, as we look full in his wonderful face, a privilege that's afforded to us because of the righteousness that's given us in Christ, all of the vain pleasures of this world will grow dim to us because we have the infinite pleasure of possessing that eternal love of God in Christ Jesus. The glorious Jesus described in John 1, 1 to 18 is the one 
who has promised to never leave you, to never forsake you. He is the eternal Son of God who with the Father and by the Holy Spirit created all things, and he has even numbered the hairs of your head. He is the incarnate Lord of all, and he mediates your prayers to the Father. He is the light of the world, and yet he calls you his friend. Look to this Jesus and behold his wonderful face. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that in your grace and kindness, you would send your son Jesus to take on flesh, to be the ransom that is the payment for the penalty that our sins deserve in order that we wouldn't receive your wrath, but that instead we would receive Christ's righteousness by faith so that we could live again with you. God, help us as we walk through this life, looking toward our eternal home, to take comfort, to take courage, knowing that you have loved us with an eternal love and that nothing that stands before us can ever, can ever change that reality. Oh God, help us to see Jesus in all his glorious splendor. We pray it is in his name. Amen.